Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Welcome to our first episode of the new year of 2023. Today, we have a special episode on 10 conflicts to watch in 2023. It's based on a piece that the Crisis Group publishes each year with foreign policy. And on our own website, it's usually our most widely viewed piece of the year. And to talk about the list, I'm extremely pleased to welcome back onto the podcast, Comfort Eero, Crisis Group's president and CEO. Comfort and I authored the piece this year, but it of course drew very much from all the expertise that we have around the organization. I'm also very pleased to welcome back on Steve Pomper, Crisis Group's Chief of Policy, who is always an invaluable sounding board contributor for putting this sort of thing together. Comfort, Steve, welcome on. Thank you for having us, Richard. Thanks for having us, Richard. So we're going to try to make this as much of a conversation as possible, but maybe let me just start by very briefly saying which conflicts are actually on the list this year. So we usually have an intro looking at uh, some of the global trends, and this year we mostly focused on the fallout from the Ukraine war, which obviously overshadowed much of global politics in 2022, and we'll talk about some of that in a moment. And then the conflicts that we included this year on the list were Ukraine, of course, Nagorno-Karabakh or uh, the South Caucasus, whether there's going to be another bout of fighting between Azerbaijan and Armenia, Iran, both the protests and the brewing crisis over its nuclear program, Yemen, in essence, uh, looking at the risk that the current lull in fighting doesn't hold, Ethiopia, probably, although data is hard to come by, the world's deadliest war last year, although fighting has now subsided due to a peace deal at the end of the year. The Democratic Republic of Congo, DRC and the Great Lakes, particularly the resurgence of the M23, a rebel group which Kinshasa and the UN say is backed by Rwanda. The Sahel, uh, the continuing challenge of Islamist militancy, plus the coups last year in Burkina Faso and earlier in Mali. Uh, Haiti, 
looking in particular at gangs' grip on much of the country and the political crisis, Pakistan, uh, and the political crisis stoked up by former Prime Minister Imran Khan, plus the floods, the economic problems and the resurgent Pakistani Taliban. And then we also looked at Taiwan and the ratcheting up of tensions around the island. And so those are the conflicts that we included this year on the list. And we'll talk in this episode about the themes of conflicts we identified, plus maybe some that we didn't. But maybe, Comfort, to begin, why don't you tell us a little bit about how we put this list together each year? Thanks, Richard. And, you know, we've been doing the watch list for some time. And one of the central overriding methodology behind the list remains the issue around the number of people dying, the number of people suffering, and also the concerns that we generally have about addressing the humanitarian need, issues around hunger, which has become a lot more acute in the conflicts that we watch. But beyond the concerns around the human toll of conflict, Richard, the other reasons that inform our 10 conflicts is that these are conflicts that our experts, crisis group itself, thinks that the world should be paying attention to. And for really three central reasons. One is the geopolitical significance. So not surprising that Ukraine is on there. The other imperative is that we continue to use this watch list as signaling to international actors the merits of paying attention to certain conflicts that are either forgotten or beyond the radar. And then the final one, I think, Richard, because of who we are, because of our mandate of always looking for resolution, always looking for ways to avert conflicts, we have some of these conflicts on our watch list because we see some of them as meriting um, attention because of peacemaking opportunities. So in, in a nutshell, that's what guides us. It's not a science, it's an art. It's very much based on our own judgment. Steve, do you want to come in on any of that? Yeah, the only thing, Comfort laid out the criteria, the, you know, people have a sense, I think, when they look at this, that there's some sort of algorithm behind it. But to some extent, it's a question of judgment. I mean, some of these conflicts come right to the top, like the Ukraine conflict, because of the huge geopolitical shadow it casts over so much of the world. Others, I think, we are worried are conflicts that might otherwise slide under the radar and that could be of quite a great deal of significance. So what we're trying to do is help set the agenda for policymakers who are interested in this space for the coming year. So it's an agenda setting exercise as much as anything. Very good. So maybe then let's talk about some of the big picture trends from last year that are likely still to reverberate through 2023. Maybe let's start with the global ramifications of the Ukraine war. So So Russia launched its all-out assault at the end of February last year. And it seems, you know, it seems that the Kremlin sort of expected an easy win, expected Ukrainian government under President Vladimir Zelensky to to collapse quite quickly, expected divisions among NATO powers, that the war would leave NATO looking weaker. Russia, Putin himself, would be stronger. And clearly it hasn't worked out like that at all. Ukraine put up this fierce resistance that we've talked a lot about on previous episodes of the podcast, really inspirational leadership by Zelensky himself. And the Western response, I think the Western response has been coherent and united. NATO, which frankly looked a bit adrift, certainly during the tenure of former US President Donald Trump, now looks much more purposeful. So maybe we could start there with the Western response. Certainly, it was a pretty gloomy and unsettling year reflected in the list that we published. But in Western capitals, there is this sense that 
at least coming out of the year for now, the Western Alliance looks stronger and that it responded well to what's been a very difficult crisis. I mean, yeah, Richard, I mean, that's really a a good summary. And if you remember in in December 2021, for example, in the lead up to 2021, the sense was that Europe and the West and the US particularly had come out of of a series of fiascos, a lot of criticism about US standing internationally, about the way it mishandled um, Afghanistan. And also you had other crises like Iraq and Libya. And suddenly you had this unifying turnaround led largely by President Biden. One of the assumptions that President Putin banked upon was that the West would not be unified, that there will be sort of divisions within Europe. And suddenly you had a very coherent, a very unified Europe in its own positioning vis-a-vis the invasion. Let's leave aside for a second the, the whole issue of Ukraine's resilience and glaring incapacities that we've seen in the year regarding Russia's um, army as well. But what have we seen? We've seen an upending, yes, of Europe's um, security architecture, but we've also seen a Germany upending decades of its own defence policy. We saw a NATO that was classified as brain dead by President Macron reinvigorating itself, and then for the first time, both Finland and Sweden um, breaking their own post-war pact and deciding that they're going to join the alliance. So, in a sense, um, you know, we said last year that Europe and the West have been shaken out of its complacency, but in a sense, it's also showed just how unified the alliance has been and how um, Europe itself has, you know, despite some initial concerns, has held together in the face of Russia's invasion. Absolutely. And I think last year at this time, when we were writing about Ukraine, one of the things we said, in addition to saying, unfortunately, presciently, that Putin's maneuverings, which at that point had not materialized into the all-out invasion that came in February, shouldn't be dismissed as bluff. But one of the things, in addition to sort of that slightly gloomy prognostication that we made at the time, that we said was that if Putin had any room for rethinking, he should do that because many of the things that he was presumably reacting to in planning this invasion, the sense of encroachment by NATO, a worry that Russia's strategic options were being narrowed, that those those situations, those problems were going to become worse for him if he actually went ahead and, and prosecuted this war in the way that it looked like he was planning. And that has exactly come true in the ways that you've said. So strategically, the quick win that he thought, you know, he would have is who knows where this conflict is ultimately going to go. But at least if you look at the last year, it's been a story of setbacks from Moscow. On the other hand, we talked a little bit about Western unity, or you put that very well, Comfort. But, you know, from where I sit in Washington, D.C., it's also been a year of really important political gains for this U.S. administration. I mean, the dominant foreign policy story in the first year of the Biden administration was the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And however one felt about that from a strategic perspective, it was a tactical disaster for the United States and the actual implementation of it. And the pictures and the optics that were created by it were really damaging to the sense of U.S., competency in foreign policy. And that was just erased from the headlines, really, 
by the conflict in Ukraine and by the way in which the United States told the story of what was about to happen before it actually happened. And it was it was right. It actually managed to get Western allies to pay attention. I think perhaps the biggest winner of the past year, if one can find a winner in a very risky and tragic situation, is the U.S. intelligence community, which really rehabilitated itself enormously in the run-up to the war. So it's been, in a sense, a bolstering set of events for the Biden administration, which has also had a good run, by the way, on the domestic side here. So uh, the Biden administration emerges from this year stronger than it was before, for sure. Steve, we've talked about this quite a bit before, how the Western's response might well have been different under a different president, notably under Biden's predecessor, under President Trump, of course. But as you say, Biden had a pretty good year. And I don't know if you agree with this, but my sense in general is that people initially underrated him as a president on foreign policy. But generally speaking, the record is not bad so far. Is that fair? It's really interesting. I mean, the medal of leaders in crisis situations is a hard thing to measure in advance. I mean, Zelensky is the classic example of this. I don't think a year ago today, any of us would have predicted that he would emerge as the wartime leader that he did emerge as. I think Biden, his strengths in terms of, I would identify two that have been particularly useful here. One, he is a good delegator. He is not somebody who needs to seize the spotlight or be involved, I think, in every single decision. So he's been able to let his team, which is, you know, a group of seasoned professionals, sort of direct the traffic to a great extent on this war. And another way in which this team is sort of, frankly, different than the team that was running foreign policy at the beginning of the Obama administration is it's not a team of rivals. It's a group of professionals, a lot of whom came up through the civil service. It doesn't have major sort of ideological rifts. It's a lot of very pragmatic folks as well. And I think the fact that Biden was sort of able to sort of hand the reins over to them and then trusted them to do some things that were pretty unconventional. I mean, what the intelligence community was doing at the beginning of the conflict in terms of really rolling out some very sensitive information, that was pretty unconventional. And getting behind them and allowing them to do that, I think those were all, you know, leadership strengths that he showed. So we should move away from Washington and look at Moscow in a moment. But maybe just, Steve, one last quick one on Biden. I mean, if there's one overarching framing for the Biden administration's foreign policy, and even to some degree its domestic policy, it's this competition with China, which we haven't mentioned yet. And that, at least, is actually not very reassuring, maybe, about Biden's foreign policy. But the rhetorical framing since Biden came to office and the struggle against China is part of that, but it's much broader than this. The rhetorical framing has been this idea of democracies versus autocracies, uh, this global battle between freedom and, and, and repression. But to me, at least, that's always jarred a bit. I mean, first, the struggle between Democrats and authoritarians, to some degree, is at home. Right? And Western democracies, arguably, that's the most important battleground, uh, particularly given the US's uh, recent history. But even leaving that aside, the world as it is today, arguably, as it's always been, but especially now, doesn't really lend itself to that kind of framing. In the end, many close US partners, people the US has to work with, aren't Democrats. And despite the Ukraine war, which can be framed as democracy versus autocracy, despite that, generally this year was sort of quite cruel on that framing, and perhaps nowhere more so than in the administration's reversal over Saudi policy. Right? Biden had been very tough on Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman during his campaign. And this year he was forced to go to Riyadh, 
try to repair relations, get more oil onto markets to keep the price down, something that in the end the Saudis didn't even do. So what do you make of that democracy versus autocracy framing? I mean, how much does Biden's team really believe in it and, and has sort of all the rhetoric backfired? It's a great question. Um, as somebody who worked on human rights inside the U.S. government for five years during the Obama administration, I found the rhetoric jarring for all the reasons that you say. It just didn't seem altogether realistic and it seemed doomed to lead to some disappointment. And that has, in fact, happened. I asked people inside the administration why they cranked the rhetoric so high. And the best answer that I got was that they were trying to draw a very clear distinction between this administration's foreign policy and that of Donald Trump, who came before. Trump didn't just do the usual business of extolling human rights and then doing business with bad human rights actors. Um, that's sort of a traditional feature of both Democratic and Republican administrations. But he actually embraced strongmen because they were strongmen. He seemed to actually appreciate and embrace authoritarianism on its own merits. And that was really not traditional and quite jarring. And the Biden administration wanted to make clear it wasn't in that same space. That's the best answer I've received. I think also um, we've seen that rhetoric tamped down a little bit. And sure, I think Biden and his team would like to uh, strike a blow for democracy and human rights where they can. They put a lot of money and effort into supporting human rights defenders and civil society around the world. But it's really quite a traditional U.S. foreign policy, pretty transactional, and human rights tends to get moved to the side when there are other agendas um, that the White House feels have to take precedence. I should turn that around, though, and ask you what you think about how the strongmen of the world have fared over the last year. I mean, look at the year that Vladimir Putin has had trying to help Russia achieve national greatness again. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, overall, clearly, it hasn't been a good year for, for President Putin. And if the war has revealed in, in NATO, revealed in Western capitals, a degree of competence that the fiascos in Afghanistan, Iraq and Libya had hidden, it also revealed weaknesses in Russia's military, that some of Russia's previous operations, what Georgia in 2008, Syria, Ukraine earlier, had disguised. I mean, it also in some ways seemed to seemed to show a, a change in Putin, that for all his sort of ruthlessness and aggression previously, he had been more cautious is probably the wrong word, but he'd been more sort of risk averse. I mean, if you think back to Georgia, for example, in 2008, I mean, he didn't try to take Tbilisi in then. He settled for these two breakaway regions. Syria, he defined his goals fairly realistically, just turned the tide of the war, didn't go for an all-out victory. And even in Ukraine, what, 2014, 2015, he was prepared to deal with Kiev and strike the Minsk agreement. So, you know, he set more realistic goals. And I think what was particularly disquieting about his all-out invasion of Ukraine was this sense that it was more reckless, that the leader of the world's most nuclear-armed state was prepared to take you know, what turned out to be uh, an enormous risk. And as you both said, he's miscalculated. I mean, it just hasn't gone as he expected. Now, what the cost for him will be, I think, is still quite hard to say. I mean, at home in Russia, it's hard to assess the level of opposition. His grip on power so far, I mean, to the extent that we know, doesn't really seem threatened. The harder line voices that are critical, because he's criticised from the right, mostly, I mean, Yevgeny Prigozhin, if you think the, the, the head of the Wagner, the security company that is close to the Kremlin that we've talked about a lot on the show, and Razam Kadyrov, the Chechen leader, both of them have been very critical of, of the war. 
and the way it's been conducted, but they focused their attacks on the army rather than Putin himself. And then if you think of the oppos opposition to the war rather than opposition to the way it's been conducted, you know, that's largely been suppressed. So I think the cost at home is still quite hard to read. Internationally, I think Putin is generally a diminished figure. I mean, you don't want to overstate it, but I think generally that's the case. Obviously, a pariah for the West. It's hard to see how his relations recover with Western capitals. China, I mean, obviously, the balance in the relationship has shifted even further toward Russia being a junior partner. Xi Jinping has sort of expressed public support, but seems quietly disconcerted basically by the war. I mean, China is still trading with Russia. That helps the Russian economy. It's buying Russian oil at knockoff prices, but it's not sending weapons. And Beijing also seems uncomfortable with some of Putin's nuclear threatening. And even someone like Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi has, has also been prepared to sort of chide Putin publicly. I mean, I, I can't remember whether it was at the, at the G20 or around the G20, but you know, Modi was sort of explicitly criticising the war and, and criticising some of Putin's language, which, you know, I think it's hard to have seen that happening a, a year ago. The war's also changed Russia's relations with parts of the former Soviet Union. South Caucasus, we included on the watch list this year, the risk of, a, of another bout of violence between Azerbaijan and Armenia. The last war, several weeks of fighting in 2020, ended in a ceasefire that was brokered by Moscow, Russia then deployed peacekeepers to monitor the front lines. But it seems now that Azerbaijan is less worried about annoying Moscow, that the deterrence value of Russian peacekeepers is less than it was before, now that Moscow is sort of distracted in, in Ukraine. Calculations in the region are, are, are shifting. I mean, it may, of course, shift back, but that seems to have been the impact so far in Central Asia as well. I mean, clearly, there's been some recalibration, particularly Kazakhstan, which, like Ukraine, has a big Russian-speaking minority, has distanced itself from Moscow. So I think overall there's a lot on the international stage that might worry Putin. On the other hand, you don't want to overstate this. Many governments in the global south, to use the sort of least offensive catch-all for, for governments outside the West, you know, we'll talk about this in more depth in a moment, they've sought to avoid picking a fight with Moscow. They haven't broken ties with Russia. So it's not as though Putin is isolated, but I think... He is a, a diminished figure. I mean, it's, it's, it hasn't been a good year for him. But perhaps we could talk about some of those sort of non-Western governments. I mean, one of the things, comfort that we pointed to in the piece was that the Ukraine war had really sort of shone a light on the, the influence, the autonomy of non-Western so-called middle powers. I mean, Turkey, maybe most obviously, Saudi Arabia, India, all sort of navigating what are often quite complicated for them, great power tensions, but also taking advantage of an increasingly multipolar world. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, in terms of how international relations has panned out, you know, one of the things that I think that a number of Western states didn't anticipate was the robust way in which what we now call middle powers or emerging um, powers and how they had responded to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Who are we talking about here? We are talking about Turkey, we're talking about Saudi Arabia, we're talking about India as well. Each of these countries has a relationship with Russia. Each of these countries also have a strong footprint in their region and they've all, all taken independent positions that's varied from how the West has wanted the rest of the world to view the invasion by Russia into Ukraine. The most interesting of all these three, for me, Richard, because I saw its role on the Africa continent, has been Turkey. 
and both how it's tried to balance its relationship um, within NATO and the relationship that it has with Russia, particularly now the only other outside country really playing an active role in Syria and then playing a very, I think, instrumental role in delivering the Black Sea Grain Deal with the SG um, Antonio Guterres as well. And both you and Steve discussed um, earlier Gulf politics and, you know, how Biden, um, Steve, as you were noting, had to sort of backtrack and reverse his own position, very strong election positioning on Mohammed bin Salman. I think the OPEC plus and the decision by Saudi Arabia to maintain the high oil prices, you know, irritated, upset um, Washington. And I think the response to the Saudis, at least the way they explained it to us, Richard, when I was there with colleagues in the Middle East, was that the, the West fails to understand that regions like ours, countries like ours, you know, have very clear, distinctive foreign policy instinct that don't necessarily gel with what the West wants. And then you've got India, again, another one that's taken a very pragmatic line, very strong security relationships with the US, but has its own pragmatic leanings, security um, with Russia, but also an important actor, which it, it acts like a bulwark um, vis-a-vis China. I mean, it's interesting. There's been quite a bit of commentary from last year. And actually, we, we mentioned it in our piece that it was a bad year for strongmen. I mean, President Putin, we've talked about Xi Jinping in China had a bit of a mixed year. I mean, he's, he cemented his his power, uh, you know, secured a third term at the party congress. But some pretty big questions about his handling of COVID. Jair Bolsonaro lost out in Brazil, of course, though over recent days there have been these dramatic scenes in Brasilia. Former President Trump appears a diminished force. And yet some of the others that you just talked about, you know, I think it's fair still to call them strong men, and they didn't do too badly. Erdogan, the grain deal, as you say, generally continued his balancing act between NATO and Russia. His support, even domestically, has picked up a bit since the middle of the year. I think his party, the AKP, is polling now higher than any other single party. Mohammed bin Salman generally had a pretty good year. People seem to be turning the page on the murder of Saudi journalist uh, Jamal Khashoggi. Biden himself seems to want a fresh start. People seem to be realising that MBS is going to be around for a while. Narendra Modi in India hardly looking weaker. And in Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu is back in power again at the head of this very hardline coalition. So so all in all, it seems a, a bit of a mixed picture. I mean, strongman rule sort of as a style of leadership and right-wing populism, which is not quite the same as sort of an overlapping phenomenon. The scorecard on that is pretty mixed over the past year, notwithstanding the Kremlin's travails in Ukraine. From the U.S. perspective, it, it is exactly as you say, it's a mixed picture. I mean, you could certainly have imagined the last 12 months going worse from the perspective of elevating really dangerous right-wing populists um, in the sense that there were quite a few prominent Trump-backed election-denying candidates who did not fare well in the November elections. And, you know, that sends a certain signal that election denial is not a politically salient platform. On the other hand, you know, a lot of people who made their mark by selling those kinds of ideas who are still very close to former President Trump are still in power in Congress. They actually have growing power. So what you saw in, you know, the transfixing mess around the election of the new House Speaker, um, you know, the Republicans took power in the House of Representatives, which is the lower house here in the United States. Um, they had to elect their, who's going to run the House, uh, the Speaker. 
and a very small and very active and vocal group of populists was able to basically hijack the election and prevented the huge favorite, Kevin McCarthy, from being elected through something like 15 rounds um, until they could get their demands for changing the rules of the House to give them more power. And then, you know, really strikingly, um, in his public statements after, you know, he was elected, McCarthy thanked President Trump explicitly and sort of went out of his way to say his influence is not diminishing here. Now, I think his influence is probably diminishing here, but there's clearly a felt sense um, among those members of Congress um, and between them and President Trump that each benefits by lifting the other up. So it's a movement that may be uh, not as advanced as they thought they were going to be at the end of 2022, but it's definitely not gone. Before we move to some of the other crises, maybe let's talk a bit about the rest of the world and the way that many non-Western countries outside the middle powers we've talked about have positioned themselves. And Comfort, you and I have talked about this on the podcast before. Many countries across the world are prepared to vote to condemn Russia's invasion, prepared to vote against its proclaimed annexation of parts of eastern and southern Ukraine. But few have been prepared to support Western sanctions, for example, or break publicly with Putin. And most have been reluctant to pick a side. Comfort, do you want to talk a bit about some of the reasons for that? Yeah, and it's the same logic um, that we see with some of the middle powers, that these are countries, whether in Latin America or, or in Africa or parts of Asia, that also have their own um, national security interests, have their own foreign policy. They don't want to be forced into an either or pick or choose um, one side or the other. A number of them sort of also have their own trading relationships with Russia, for example, have their own defence military um, relationships with Russia and China. For example, it's interesting um, in the context of a very strong anti-French movement that we're seeing in the Sahel or in Central Africa, Mali and, and Central African Republic, for no other reason but for defence and survival reasons, have chosen to tie their lot behind Russia and have also used um, the mercenary outfit Wagner to help prop up their own regimes as well, and have often seen Russia as an alternative security architecture. So you've got that group of countries who have, for military and defence reasons, have chosen to tie their lot behind Russia. There are others who, just for pragmatic trading reasons, have also decided that they want to take sides. And there are others who, for historical reasons, more to do with their sort of views of the Soviet Union and liberation struggle, um, have also um, decided to maintain a neutral line. I, I'm here referring to, to South Africa. There's sometimes a sense in which people assume that the reasons why these countries are sort of taking this position is because they are pro-Russia. No, I also think there's just a history of frustration also an irritation in relation to Western intervention. You'll hear a lot of talk, Richard, and we've talked about it, about this double standards. Why are you forcing us to put more weight behind what a number of them see as a European conflict? Why didn't you show the same kind of unity and consensus and condemnation vis-a-vis crises in our backyard? And also, last point for me, Richard, this is coming in the context where the international system did not show unity or consensus vis-a-vis things that bothered 
a number of Global South countries, climate security, climate financing, climate adaptation being one of them, and the other big one also um, around the pandemic and the, the COVID-19 pandemic as well. This should not, however, be misunderstood as not being supportive of Ukraine because a number of these countries in the Global South have also suffered um, history of aggression and a number of them come out of colonial um, history as well. I think it's an important point that's often lost in the whole conversation about them and us and the West versus the rest narrative that we heard a lot last year. Yeah, very, very true. And I mean, before we move on to, to some of the other crises on the list, I mean, in some ways, the Ukraine war has cast a sharper light on or accelerated patterns in international affairs that were already there, right? I mean, so, you know, it showed something about the Western alliance, you know, notwithstanding the fact that it might have been different under different American leadership. It said something about the real strength of Russia's military, uh, made Russia even more of a junior partner to China, showed the increasing importance we talked about of these middle powers, particularly non-Western ones, but also showed, as you exactly as you say, that Western leaders can't take the rest of the world for granted. One more point. The other point that grates the so-called global south also is the strong economic downturn. Now, there's a lot of talk about how sort of inflation is now going in the other direction. But one of the concerns for um, the global south or for African countries and Latin America countries also is just the, the sheer cost of living and also the external debt, which is increasing as well. And how we address that I think that is really at the top of the agenda. And for an organisation that looks at key indicators um, and flashpoints that could cause instability, um, especially in countries that are already vulnerable, you mentioned Pakistan, I think we do need to pay attention um, to this increase in debt crisis that a number of, of countries that are already vulnerable are facing and trying to think differently um, about how we're going to address that. And that requires conversations this particular year, um, the G7 being led by Japan, but also the fact that India is leading the G20 this year also is reason why I think this has to be at the top of the agenda if we're going to overcome the poly crisis that we talk about a lot. So could we maybe talk about a few of the other conflicts on the list? Ethiopia, you know, as I said up top, arguably, I mean, data is very hard to come by, but arguably the world's deadliest conflict, deadliest war last year, ended the year with this dual deals, one in Pretoria, one in Nairobi. Is this the end of the, the war for Tigray? I mean, how, how optimistic are you? I mean, I don't know whether it's the end of the, the war. Richard, last year we put Ethiopia on our list as a country of concern. It's on our list again this year, both in terms of um, optimism because of the two peace deals that we've gotten. Both sides have respected the truce and there have been significant sort of material improvement. We've seen now today an opening of the road um, and humanitarian access sort of reopening for Tigray. We've seen telecommunication and banking um, services returning into Tigray. And although the road travel is still a little bit limited, there's still some important movements as well. But there are two key unresolved issues that we need to pay attention to, and that is really the commitment by Eritrea to withdraw and the Tigrayans to disarm as well. These are the two, I think, big headaches that we need to, to watch and to make sure that President Isais commits to that 
um, but also that the Tigrayans also move ahead with disarming as well. And then there's also the unresolved problem, as you know, Richard, of Western um, Tigray and therefore the withdrawal and clashing interest between Amhara, who lay claims to that part of Tigray versus the Tigrayans as well. So reasons to be optimistic, but a lot of reasons to be nervous um, about whether the peace will hold. But nonetheless, don't let us underestimate that this is markedly different from last year, from a, just purely from a human suffering perspective, when you look at the, the just the tragic figures that have come out of Tigray um, at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you if you were to wind back sort of a year and you look at where Ethiopia is now, I mean, I think you'd say that was a good news story. And the other thing, comfort, that we talked about quite a bit, we didn't mention it in the piece, is that even if the Tigrayan peace process holds, even if Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed can repair relations with the Tigrayan leaders, manage his relationship with Isaias, there is still this issue of Oromia to deal with, a hugely populous area that Abiy himself is from that has its own insurgency. Yeah, and I think, quite frankly, um, Richard, I think we have our work cut out in paying attention to a conflict that sort of hasn't been on the radar in the same way as, as Tigray. You know, when you look at Ethiopia, there are different parts of the country um, that are really going through a lot of turmoil. And Oromia has always been a central one um, because Tigray sucked out all the energy of the room. It was, in a sense, an internationalized civil war. All the energy from various international actors and regional actors was around Tigray. But we do need to deal with the other upheavals um, in the country. And talking about some of those regional actors that you mentioned whose attention was sucked up by the Tigray conflict, mediation was led by the African Union, former Nigeria President Olushigan Obasanjo, but former Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta also played a role. Now, another conflict which Kenya has sort of increased its involvement in trying to you know, help resolve is another one that we're also particularly worried about. We put that on the list as well. And that's the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, DRC, where uh, the M23, this rebel group, has resurged. Congolese and the UN have long said it is backed by uh, Rwanda. And and the M23's resurgence really seems sort of partly a product of and partly a cause of deteriorating relations between Congolese President Felix Tshisekedi and Paul Kagame, the, the, the Rwandan president. You also have Ugandan forces in the eastern DRC fighting a Ugandan armed group, the ADF. And now an East African force, which sort of Kenya spearheading, is deploying in an attempt to contain the M23. So easy to see a potential for a regional escalation. Do you want to talk a little bit about that too, Comfort? I'd also add that the added um, complication that this is election year in the DRC. So it's both an internal problem of um, President um, Chisikidi trying to reassert the government's authority um, in, a, in a region that really has continued to see the re-emergence of insurgency and also then deal with the interests, both economic, political and security interests of Uganda and particularly Rwanda as well. And that really is the story of Eastern DRC. And the fact that Kenya has decided to take a very sort of forward-leaning role um, 
let's see. I mean, I think one of the, our big messages, Richard, is that we do need to see regional diplomacy and not just a regional military response shape what happens um, in the in the east. Um, you know, at a time where if we don't manage this very carefully, we're going to see the return of a regional um, proxy war. So it's a very complicated sort of set of local dynamics playing out. And, you know, one wonders whether there's a way in which the region, particularly led by Kenya, can deal with the competing interests of Uganda and particularly Rwanda, but then also help the DRC deal with the long-fought insurgencies. What is really needed is a very clear regional diplomacy to lock in the interest of of these three um, competing countries in in the region. I really do think that we we need to get all three, particularly with Kenya, really trying to find a a political solution um, to the crisis. Otherwise, I don't see how this military mission gets us out of the problem. So maybe let's shift to a very different crisis in Iran. Uh, The mass protests, of course, fronted by women and schoolgirls who reject the compulsory hijab as a symbol of of misogyny, broader oppression. But in addition to those protests, there's also, of course, the brewing nuclear crisis. Comfort, do you want to say a word or two about those? Yeah, another country, Richard, that was on our watch list for 2022, but is on the watch list um, again this year is Iran. Last year it was really about Iran, the US and Israel. Now it's a spotlight on domestic Iran because um, of the protest. And as a result, we're now dealing with a government that is increasingly isolated um, from its people, but also from international actors. And at the same time, the, the protest coincided with what I think we all agree was a troubling realisation that Iranian drones supplied to Russia as well. So those really just put the government um, in a dangerous spotlight. And I think for those who are watching developments in, in Iran, you've got, you know, this the willingness of the Iranian government to, you know, kill hundreds of people, to execute people as a sort of an example um, and warning to protesters as well. I think the dilemma now, Richard, is that this coincides with concerns about the fate of the nuclear deal um, that, you know, at once we thought was being was going to be revived. We thought that we were going to secure something last year, but now we're seeing a freezing, a stalemate. And I think there's just a real number of, of concerns for for the fate of the agreement. Partly also, I think, the, the headache or conundrum for the West um, is the dilemma of dealing with the government, but the need to also deal with, try to give diplomacy a chance. I think we all recognise that Tehran's nuclear capabilities advanced leaps and bounds over the last few years. Its uranium enrichment capacity has expanded. Yeah, it's, a, it's such a difficult one because on the one hand, again, you have this, this extraordinary protest, like amazing bravery of these thousands of protesters led by young women protesting against their, their, their treatment by the regime. It really seems like 
you know, certainly the biggest challenge, as you say, since the Green Revolution, yet another blow to the regime, but also something more than that. I mean, it really seems hard to see how it turns the clock back. I mean, something's broken and it's going to be very difficult, I think, for the regime to go back to the way it was, even if it survives. And yet, on the other hand, you've got the nuclear clock, exactly as you say, ticking. The breakout time is shorter than ever. Uranium enrichment, exactly as you say, is enhanced. And sometime, uh, potentially this year, but certainly soon, you're going to get to this point where the US faces a dilemma. I mean, is it going to take military action to try and set back Iran's nuclear program? Or is it going to live with a potentially nuclear armed Iran. I mean, that moment is coming. and Iran is not really a diminished force across the region, despite what's happening at home. So loads of flashpoints, loads of places where Tehran can stoke up problems in the Levant, uh, in other parts of, of, of the Middle East. So some sort of regional escalation related to Iran's nuclear program is a real possibility. And uh, it's not popular to say it at the moment, but in recognizing that dilemma that Western diplomats face, but it is important to try to keep diplomatic channels open to Tehran despite what's going on. And that's probably going to be the best way to do it. The way that I think it's put in the in the watch list about communicating quietly what the red lines have to be is probably the only way forward because there's such a confluence of challenges here. It's the human rights agenda, it's the non you know the non-proliferation agenda, it's the desire to choke Russia off from weapons. These are all pulling in different directions. And there's also on top of all that a huge sort of political movement in the United States that just doesn't want to see anything that could be seen as a lifeline being extended to this Iranian regime. So you know trying to do something through formal channels, try and crystallize a deal under those circumstances is very difficult. But doing something informally might work. And so Everything that's happening in Iran, the protests, Iran's international isolation, all this in some ways makes it more complicated to resolve the conflict in Yemen. Uh, given that Iran is the actor with the most influence, arguably the only actor with any influence over the, the, the Houthis. Steve, do you think that's fair? Sure. So, I mean, Yemen is a, I would say it's a mixed news story. I mean, the, the situation there is frankly better than it was a year ago. And that's um, largely because the parties themselves fought their way into a stalemate over the course of the end of 2021 and the beginning of 2022 that made it possible for the UN to move in and negotiate a humanitarian truce. They negotiated a basically a two-month truce at the beginning of uh, April 2022, was rolled over several times, um, and then expired at the beginning of October. Um, but the parties haven't returned to ma- major fighting. There have been some increased uh, level of incidents. So it's not it's not a great situation on the ground, but it's certainly not what it was. In terms of how this situation gets resolved, uh, the, the talks right now are mainly between the Houthi insurgents who chased the internationally recognized government out of uh, the capital, Sana'a, back in 2014-2015, um, and the Saudis, who have been the primary external backer um, of that government. They've been having conversations through a bilateral channel, and there are a couple of worries. One is that it's it just it's a channel that involves these two parties, not the very many factions who have an interest in the outcome of the war. So there's a question about how stable whatever they negotiate might actually be if it's just between the two of them. And then 
I mean, both sides have behaved atrociously over the course of the conflict, but the ones that are sort of keeping the fighting going are the Houthis. And, you know, their primary backer is Iran, and it's very hard to think about how one reaches the Iranians to get the Houthis to act in a more constructive way. So it's really not clear how that's all going to resolve itself in the coming year. Steve, you said something to me the other day which really struck me as, as interesting, that there's this sense that this is really a sort of post-war on terror list. I mean, the Sahel is obviously on, but elsewhere, Islamist militants, jihadists didn't really feature. And I should say this isn't deliberate on our part. We didn't seek to make a list like that. This was the list we came up with in consultation, as you both talked about with our teams. Maybe also worth adding that Afghanistan, Iraq, the post 9-11 wars, and then the post 2011 wars in which sort of ISIS often came to feature, Syria, Libya, can't describe any of these countries as stable, but none of them made this year's list, which also says something about where the world is today, certainly 15 years ago, but maybe even five years ago. Right. As you say, you know, the key post 9-11 battlegrounds, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya are not on it. Yemen's on it, but not because of counterterrorism activities there. Um, it's in it because of the Houthi-Saudi uh, conflict. So uh, why is that? I think partly because some of those conflicts have I mean, the the American pullout from Afghanistan has just transformed the nature of the situation there from a hot conflict situation to a humanitarian and human rights crisis. You know, what's interesting about the list beyond the fact that it's not a 9-11 afflicted list so much anymore is that it looks, you know, it's a little bit like a back to the future list. There's a lot of interstate conflict on there. I mean, you know, four or five conflicts here are old style interstate conflicts or threatening interstate conflicts, some involving, you know, potential clashes between uh, major powers. Uh, again, you know, you would have thought we were sort of beyond that, but I think what we're seeing in this um, post, uh, post-war on terror moment is a testing by international actors, including major states, of the system to see whether or not it will tolerate things that would have uh, been unthinkable, uh, you would have thought, at least in the sort of immediate post-Cold War era. So we've talked quite a bit about the conflicts on the list and each year, probably inevitably, we get people saying, what have you left off? You know, why wasn't this conflict included? That war should have been on. And the one that we admitted this year that seemed to get the most attention, at least on social media, was Myanmar. Obviously a crisis that's had this terrible human toll, this brutal violence by the military regime against protesters led to this sort of determined armed resistance that seems very resilient. Plus, of course, you've still got the big ethnic insurgencies. It's hard to see the crisis ending anytime soon. And it's something that's been a big focus of our work in Asia. I mean, we've dedicated a lot of our time to it over the past couple of years. It was on our list last year. I have to admit, though, if we were adding to the list, I think the first that didn't make it on, that I would have put on, would be not Myanmar, but Israel-Palestine, partly because of the new far-right government under Netanyahu that we mentioned earlier, further steps towards annexation, provocations already on the holy esplanade of Palestinian politics as divided as ever, Abu Mazin, Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas, not getting any younger, and from what we can see, sort of no clear succession plan and the institutions that are supposed to manage succession have been basically dismantled. Plus, you have the fact that policy in Western capitals just seems totally stuck. I mean, really dispiriting. No hope, it seems, of sort of any effort to introduce at least some accountability for what Israel 
is doing. So I think if I was to add a single other crisis, probably I would have added Israel-Palestine first. But that's probably not going to mollify those people on Twitter that said we should have included <laughs> Myanmar. Comfort, Steve, any, any others you'd flag? It goes back to the point we raised at the beginning of the conversation that the fact that you're not on the list doesn't mean that it's not something we're keeping an eye on, uh, you know, and, and the Israel Palestine is, is always a centerpiece of crisis groups list. I mean, the point is, where do you end? As you said, Steve, these are the 10 conflicts that we think are important for various sets of reasons for us to watch. And there are a number of other watch lists um, that we'll be putting out um, in the next few weeks, one in relation to the European Union that we think the European Union may have leverage um, in which to help um, drive issues. And then we have one specifically um, to the Africa Union. I mean, we could have added a number of, of other countries, as you as you're rightfully saying, but we have to also draw the draw the line um, somewhere, especially because of the clear message that we're that we're trying to signal to to various actors as to why we want them. To, to zoom in on these conflicts as well. The other one is North Korea, which, um, you know, has declared that it's going to be exponentially expanding its nuclear program and is, you know, looks like it's about to test possibly a solid propellant ICBM, wants to develop its counter-strike capability against the United States. These are all actions, they're consistent with the actions that were being taken back in 2017 that created this very dangerous war of words between um, then-President Trump and um, Kim Jong-un. Since then, you know, thing, that, that crisis has sort of moved to the back burner. But it looks like the Koreans really, the North Koreans really are sort of stepping up their program. My guess is the big difference here is that they've already crossed certain thresholds and the United States has priced in um, a level of risk that it hadn't priced in back in 2017. And I suspect a big uh, focus of American effort is going to be to try and keep this thing from boiling over. So they'll take steps to signal deterrence, um, to increase hopefully their, their, their capability of deterring North Korea and, to, and make clear that North Koreans understand what the consequences would be if they stepped over certain lines. But they're not going to want, the Americans are not going to want this to be a crisis in the coming year. They've got their hands full with other things. Yeah, that's a very good way to put it. Maybe then let's uh, let's end, if we can, with uh, an optimistic scenario for the year ahead and maybe a more pessimistic one. Where do you see cause for hope and cause for gloom? What would be sort of a good outcome for, for 2023 and what are you most fearful about? You know, when we issued our 10 conflicts to watch, um, we also felt the need to put out um, 10 things to hope for this year as well and... Um, at the top of that list, Richard, despite the fact that I, I said that I, I can't answer the question around the fate of Ethiopia's peace deal, we did put that as number one in terms of, although it could still go wrong, the ending or a lull in the horrific violence itself is good news. And we put Brazil on the list, um, which is very good news. And of course... Then we saw what happened with Bolsonaro's own um, supporters. But I think there is some kind of important, hopeful news there because the message that came out of that um, sort of assault 
on Brazil's institutions was not all bad in that, you know, in a sense, you got a very clear messaging from also those who are on Bolsonaro's side that they didn't um, condone um, what happened. Um, a number of them were, cr were critical of what happened um, on the 8th of January. A number of them um, saw that it was, it, it, you know, a number of them were, were quite clear in their criticism. So I don't think all is lost, despite concerns, um, initial concerns and anxieties about the perils of democracy there. I think it's still something to hope for in that transition as well. And look, optimism would be probably too strong a word for the uh, feeling I have about the indicators I'm about to sort of tick through, but these are at least um, okay, if not good news stories. Um, one, I think, is, you know, I, th I was encouraged to see that Biden and she sat down at the G20 summit in Indonesia, signaling, um, I think, a sense on both sides that they don't want tensions to grow out of control, at least in the immediate future. I think what we already talked about, the fact that rights respecting democracies had a better year that might have been expected um, against other forces that have been uh, looking increasingly uh, virulent over recent years. Um, that's probably a, a decent new, uh, news story. Um, I think the, the story about multilateralism sort of muddling through is, is, is really, a, you know, a better news story than we might have expected um, even 10 months ago when we were looking at the aftermath of the of the all-out invasion at the end of February, our UN experts were worried that really the ability of the organization, the United Nations, to function um, was going to be severely compromised. And what we've actually seen is that um, there was an ability to compartmentalize in New York. And that, for those of us who worked in the sort of conflict prevention and mitigation space, um, is a good news story. Comfort, Steve, thank you very much for coming on today. Really uh, great to talk to you both, and I'm sure we'll have the opportunity over the course of the year to have you both on uh, again. Thank you for having us, um, Richard. Thanks, Richard. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. So do check out that piece we've been talking about all episode, 10 Conflicts to Watch. Uh, you can find it on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub. Thanks, of course, as ever, to all of you, our listeners. Please do get in touch, podcast at crisisgroup.org. If you have any suggestions, comments, concerns, if you like the show, please do say something nice about us. Give us a positive rating or review. I think next week we're maybe going to try to look at the year ahead in Africa. The week after that, I think what we're going to try and do is pick up on this this strongman theme that we talked about in this week's episode. How did strongmen fare over 2022 and how should we view their future? So I hope very much you'll join us for those. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.